Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for yet another day of life. We know we're not guaranteed each day, but we have to see them as a gift from you, our sustainer and our creator and our redeemer. And now as we study you and your plan for not only the redemption of the righteous, but the destruction of the wicked, help us to see the fullness of the character of God and help us to see that from beginning to end, truly you are love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's take out our Bibles, and I want to start with a rather obscure text, um, and, and I do encourage a good study of this, be, uh, this, to, this text, I should say, to be highlighted with your Bible study interests, because I think, as you don't have to think this because I think it, but I just happen to think this is one of, if not the biggest promise in the Bible, and it's found in the book of Nahum, one of those minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. And if you have a difficulty with it, your Bible study interests are going to have a terrible time with it. But Nahum, chapter 1, and verse 9. Scripture says, it's a rhetorical question, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter, what? End of it. And what is the it? Well, it tells us next. Affliction will not rise up a what? A second time. Now, this is important. After we study the second coming and the redemption of the saints, the big question that we should have and definitely the angels have is, how do we know they won't mess it all up again? I mean, haven't we demonstrated that we are sinful people and rebellious creatures, disobedient subjects, however you want to call it, that if they bring us up here, the property values are going to plummet, you right? And we're going to just start the whole cycle over again. If I were in heaven now in a position like Gabriel, I think there would be a legitimate, um, not distrust of God, let's be clear, but a legitimate concern that the plan won't actually work. So how do we go through this? How can God allow freedom of choice for all eternity? Because you could say, well, he can take away the freedom to choose. Well, if that were the answer, couldn't he have done that 6,000 years ago without having to go through all this? I mean, without having to go through Calvary and stuff? I mean, if he could just change the rules at the last second, so that can't possibly be right. Plus, we, we could explore down the philosophy of what love is, but love without choice is not love. Love only exists in choice. You know, I told you the story the other day when I knelt down and had a gift for my wife and I asked her to marry me, or I tried to ask her to marry me. What if instead of pulling out that nice gift, instead I pulled out a gun? I was like, will you marry? Well, yeah. <laughs> as soon as force, coercion comes into the question, it changes the nature of the situation, right? And God isn't going to redeem folks and say, all right, now you have no choice. You have to stay here for eternity. I'm going to erase your minds and you can't choose otherwise. That's the only way we're safe. No. The character you develop here, the mind that you have here, will be taken with you to heaven and will be safe to save. How is that possible? Okay. And how can he guarantee that no one will ever choose to sin again? The answer is found in a study of the second coming and the events that happen after it. 
but let's just take a look. Let's just go into our Bibles. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I, and I know, like he said, we don't have clearly articulated key points, but when I launch into the study, I like to make the point that what we just talked about, you know, that the, the notion, if we're going to go to heaven, how can we know we won't mess it up again? How can God make that guarantee? Well, let's go and first look at the experience of the wicked at the second coming. What do they experience when Jesus comes again? Because we're going to take them back to the four steps. And here we have the culmination. Those who um, have overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And we already talked about the second coming of Jesus. It's going to be literal, visible, audible, global, personal. You're not going to miss it. So when Jesus comes, what will it be like for the wicked at that time? Second Peter chapter 3, uh, let's see here, verses uh, 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So clear, we're talking about the wicked here. Saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And it describes how the uh, fire will come and it will burn up all things, right? Revelation chapter 6, that's the promise that's given there, is that the day of the Lord will come and that sin and wickedness will be burned up. Revelation, in symbolic language, I guess prophetic language, I should say here, starting with chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, gives us a picture of the experience of the wicked on that great and dread, uh, dreadful day. It says in verse 14, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the rocks and mount, mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? So there, in their estimation, no one should be able to stand and they're all literally running for the hills. In fact, not just the foothills, the mountains themselves and the rocks, the big Rocky Mountains, right, to fall on them, and they would rather be crushed out of existence than have to face the wrath of the Lamb. And perhaps the most uh, graphic language, Revelation chapter 19, starting with verse 11, this time in symbolic language, but the point is very clearly made of what the experience of the wicked will be when Christ returns. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is this word referring to? Jesus Christ, right? He's coming victorious as King of Kings. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are these armies of heaven? These are the reapers who are the angels, right? 
Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. He's calling the birds to feast on what? The dead. The flesh of the wicked. And it goes on to describe the utter, and you can read it for yourself, we don't need to go through each set, but the utter des desolation that results. In fact, look at the very last verse, verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And that's how Revelation 19 ends, with a very vivid description of the, of the wicked's experience when Christ returns. That they will be destroyed, that they will be strewn across the earth, and you have the imagery of birds gathering to eat their flesh in a great supper. It's pretty grotesque, actually. And as bad as that is, you could say, well, that was awful, it was terrible, but now the judgment is over, the plagues have been poured out, and the wicked are dead. At least now it's all done. Except that it's not. And there are many Seventh-day Adventists who cannot, or don't even venture to try to go there, explain why in the world is there more beyond the Second Coming? And how in the world does this reveal the character of God who is love? I don't know if you ever had any of those thoughts when you were younger, or maybe still now, but if all we talk about the millennium is at the end of the millennium, the wicked are raised to life, and then they're going to be killed. It's like, so Christ destroys them at his coming, lets them sleep for a thousand years, and wakes them up just to kill them again. So, we got to wrestle through this from the scripture. Why is this a thing? And how does this reveal a God who is love and justice and mercy? Okay. Furthermore, as we keep reading, and we're just going to scroll right into Revelation chapter 20 now. Verse 1. Notice that this seems to be a seamless um, transition here because we just had the destruction of the wicked at the second coming. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And tell me in the next verse if this sounds like Revelation 12, when we talked about the war in heaven, Michael and his angels, right? He laid hold of whom? The dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So it's referring us right back to that same storyline we just had, the same character. The dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He keeps getting cast out and moved aside and removed from the sympathies and now bound, but the one thing he's never done yet is die. <laughs> is this guy invincible? Is he inherently immortal? Can God only move him, but not, you know, remove him? <laughs> Let's keep reading and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. I do like that. 
and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Now, this is very important. He should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now, if that's all we had, does that not strongly imply that he will deceive the nations again when the thousand years are finished? Yes. So what was implied there becomes more explicit. It says, but after these things, after this thousand years, he must be released forever for a little while. And notice it doesn't say he will be released. It says he what? It's a necessity. It's a requirement. It must happen in God's plan. What in the world are we talking about? Why is Satan, and I assume his evil angels along with him, the only wicked to survive the second coming? And I, I like the, well, it's God's plan. We'll never know it, but we can know it. But you're right, it is God's plan. And if the unfallen angels and the redeemed, by, by the way, what's the experience of the righteous at the second coming? Isn't that great? They go to heaven? If you were dead in Christ, what happens? You resurrect, you rise first. And if you're living when Christ comes, you go up with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So now we have all the righteous who have ever lived are now alive and with Christ in heaven. All the wicked who have ever lived are all gathered together in their graves, or I should say are bound in bundles for the burn. Right? <laughs> They're separate... Okay. <laughs> bodies are, honestly, bodies are of little concern for the righteous and the wicked. The real issue is character. That's it. Bodies are easy for Jesus. That's an easy thing for him. But my point is that the wicked are all gathered in the grave. The righteous are all gathered with Christ. The great separation has come, yet Satan keeps living. Why give him any more time to live? Yes, ma'am. We don't know. Because it only mentions Satan there, even though it does talk about in other places where we'll judge the angels during that time, and we're going to come to that in a minute. So I have to assume that they are a part of his posse, but he is spoken to as the leader. So I don't know. Good question. Um, <clears throat> yes, sir. The wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Yes, sir. But Satan wouldn't be destroyed by that. He is sustained through it. We have an example of this, by the way. Yeah, because, he, I mean, he, he's gone to heaven in his fallen state. Yeah. Now, I don't want to ex extrapolate as to why he can do it. Does he have some sort of divine force field? I don't know. But I do know this. Remember what Peter talked about, the fire of the last days, and he compared it to the water previously? And that world was destroyed with water? But Satan survived that, and he was outside the ark. But he was limited to this world. But Sister White says that he feared for his life. But why did Satan live through that? Because his time had not yet come. It was not time from there. How does, how does Satan live through the second coming? It's by the sustenance of God. He keeps him for this purpose. So it might be a pretty important thing if he can keep living through all of this. Because he does not have inherent immortal life. He's a created being. Yet he seems to be bulletproof. So what's the deal? Anyway, so my contention is this. And I want you to bring up some of these things with your people because they're going to say, like, that's a good question. It's like an infomercial. They teach you that you have a need, and then there's for $19.99, I'll fulfill that need. You know? 
If I hadn't turned the TV on, I wouldn't even known there was a problem. But now they describe a problem. They're like, oh, I've always had that problem. Now I must have the solution. Well, here you go. It's only 20 bucks. Um, I'm not going to charge you 20 bucks here. But I would hope that people see this good line of questioning. Why is it not done at the second coming? What possible good could come from another thousand years for Satan? And what are the details of this process, right? So let's learn about it. Basically, I'm going to put this one on the board. I'm not often a board writer, but let's say that there are three things going on here. You have the before Christ comes, he does a work of judgment determining who's saved and who's lost, right? We call this the pre-advent judgment, meaning before the second coming. What's another term for that? The investigative judgment. is investigating the cases and rendering a verdict in each person's account, right? Then we have the event of the second coming. So that's more of a point in time type of thing. Then you have a post-Advent judgment. And I notice that in most Adventism, we focus on defending and understanding the pre-Advent judgment. And that does make some sense as we're living during this time. So it's the most particularly relevant to us now. But oftentimes we'll do this, then we'll come here, and then it's like, well, and then Jesus will take care of the rest. But the Bible gives us things we should know, and we should know them. Okay? And I think this is important. Understanding this helps us be the people who will want to be part of this. Right? Anyway, we'll, we'll see what I mean here in just a second. Let's look at the pre-Advent judgment. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Another Old Testament book written by the wisest man ever to live. Shot, saved Jesus, of course. And in the summation of his life experience and his writings and reflections, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the very last lines of his review of all life. <laughs> he su summarizes Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and you can let people know it's in the wisdom part of the literature. You had Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms. It's right in there. So if they can find Psalms, they can find Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Solomon writes, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is the great final thesis thought. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. That's pretty good. But then he tells us why we should do that. What's our motive? For God will bring every work into what? Judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So not only should we do this for ourselves, but we have to recognize that we're standing in the sight of a holy God who keeps record of all rights and wrongs. And there is a prophesied day coming where every person will be judged, including every secret thing. Now, much of the Christian world believes that that judgment has already occurred at the cross and or in combination with your death. But the idea that there's a judgment beyond that is a very foreign concept. Acts chapter 17, I want to show you something here. We're looking now at the pre-advent judgment. All of these texts are 
still dealing with this, okay? Ecclesiastes 12. Now um, let's look at Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Here, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Athenians at the Areopagus who have no knowledge of the true God, and he's informing them for the very first time. And mercifully, he says in verse 30, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Can someone say amen? Amen. Amen. That's applicable to us to this day. But (laughs) now commands all men everywhere to do what? Repent. So when you're ignorant, God overlooks it. But as soon as you have a knowledge of what to do, and you recognize your wrongness, you must repent and turn away from that, right? So when you're ignorant, he overlooks, but now, and what's the motivation? Verse 31, because he has appointed a day. Notice this is on a divine schedule again. I also think it's interesting that after the second coming, we're back to a timeline. We have a thousand years. In all of this whole string of events, the only one that doesn't have a set time is the second coming. I don't know why that's so interesting to me, but it really is. Anyway, he keeps going, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So did Paul after the cross of Calvary, still think that the judgment was a future occurrence? Yes. So Ecclesiastes was looking for, Solomon was looking forward to the judgment, but then we fly right past the cross and we see that the Apostle Paul is still looking forward, even though the cross has already happened. And who is the judge? It's the same guy who hung on the cross, but now he's been raised from the dead, and there's a day appointed, there's a time, a set time for that judgment to begin. Again, I believe we're talking about the investigative judgment here. Okay, now, Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 14. Let's take a look here. Again, we're looking at the texts that give us a very simple, and hopefully at this point in their studies, the idea of a pre-advent judgment is a review for them. But you can go over it several times. It's good to have, it wouldn't it be nice if you had four or five just handy texts in your mind that you could unequivocally demonstrate that there is a judgment after the cross, but before the second coming. Watch this now. Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 9. You know, he's watching this little horn power, which is part of that sequence of beasts, you know. Uh, You had the the lion, the bear, the leopard, then the terrible beast, and the terrible beast with ten horns, then the little horn that came up from among them and grew big, and had eyes and mouth uh, like like a man, So in the time of that eyes and mouth like a man, little horn power, verse 9 comes along and says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands men to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So two points. Number one, you see that this is happening during the time of events still occurring on earth. This is while the little horn is speaking its pompous words and it's got its eyes. We can know that. Number two, verse 11, 
I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words with the horn was speaking. So this judgment is going on in heaven while events are still occurring down here on earth before Christ returns. Now, as we keep going, let's look at this judgment scene. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And we would think, aha, that's the second coming. But is that a reference to the second coming? No. How can we know that definitively? We just keep reading. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to where? The Ancient of Days. And we already know where the Ancient of Days was. The Ancient of Days came in and was ushered into the courtroom where the books were opened, right? And now Christ, the Son of Man, comes with the clouds of heaven and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdoms that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Do you remember Elder Bohr speaking about these passages? Good. And notice he talks about the reception of the kingdom is a reference to the citizens of the kingdom that are being determined in this pre-advent judgment. So when Christ comes back, he's not figuring out who's his. He's just separating the sheep from the goats. Are we all on the same page? Okay, very simple. Uh, I think one of the simplest, clearest verses, verses for this is Revelation chapter 22, verses 11 and 12, to demonstrate that there's judgment and then the second coming. Does this line up with 1844? Just happens to line up with 1844, yes. What are the odds? That there is a day appointed, yes. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. Uh, 1844, of course, was the beginning of this work. Right. What we're now going to talk about is the close of the work and the coming of Christ. And notice the judgment and then the coming. Verse 11 of Revelation 22 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So there's a determination between the, a distinction made between the righteous and the wicked. Now, is this before the coming of Jesus? Yes, because look, and behold, I am coming how? Quickly. So has Christ yet come? No. So you see there's the determination between the righteous and the wicked, and then the promise is given, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Okay? So clearly... Christ has looked at every secret thing, has reviewed all the books, and has made a determination as to who is righteous and wicked. So the case of every individual has been rendered, and I want to be clear about this, I want to give the correct word here, and the verdict of each case has been rendered. What is, give me common nomenclature for verdict. It's either guilty or not guilty. Right, it's guilty or not guilty. It's the declaration of your guilt or innocence. That's what that is. You're either righteous or unrighteous, period. Now, Christ comes again, as we've already seen. But now let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. And again, we could go back and keep in our minds the second coming study, how the righteous will ascend from the graves and from the ground, and they'll join the Lord in the air, and the wicked will be gathered into the grave. There's this great separation, and my reward is with me, to give to each one according to his works. And that's what happens at the second coming. But our real issue is not with this process, because we are, yeah, Christ 
renders the verdict, and then he comes out to separate the sheep from the goats. But why this one? That's where our concern is now. Revelation chapter 20 again. Remember, we have a thousand years while the wicked are dead, and after these things, he must be released for a little while. What I want to demonstrate is there is a second phase of judgment. It's just as important as the first phase of judgment. By the way, every secular civil legislature operates the same way in human terms now. But let's keep reading. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Well, this begs the question, who are they? <laughs> Who's the them? Who's the they? Well, the good thing is the Bible interprets itself, and as we keep reading, it says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we have the righteous redeemed here that are given thrones, and judgment is committed to them. Now already, probably some of you are a little like, ooh, I don't... Is that really saying that the redeemed from the earth will judge? And if the verdict has already been rendered, what is there left to do? Let's keep studying it. Revelation 20, for the millennium, anytime, any Bible study series, Revelation 20 is going to be your home base, okay? But this is not... Don't get in your mind that this is the only place that talks about this judgment. It is not. Let me show you something fascinating. Go back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Apparently, the church of Corinth frustrated the Apostle Paul a little bit. But it's to our benefit because he wrote them some pretty clear, clear counsel. We're going to go to chapter 4 this time. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to put some text on the board. We're going to go back here. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. And honestly, we're going to do more than here. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 4. Now, we know that the Bible tells us, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? My, I'll tell you just my little concern about the judge not concept, even though, of course, it's clearly from Christ, but it's what we do with it, is sometimes we say, oh, that means I can't judge anything. And what happens is, while we should rightly shun judgmentalism, Sometimes we accidentally throw out judicious thinking, right? And so in our efforts to not be judgmental, we end up not being discerning. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, well, I can't tell you what to... No, no, no. I, I can't condemn you. I can't read your heart. I don't know your character. But I can certainly inspect the fruit, right? I'm supposed to have responsibility to that. So there is a, we are supposed to have judicious minds, discerning thoughtfulness, but not be judgmental to the people. Our goal is not to be punitive, but redemptive in all things, right? But notice the tension here the Apostle Paul gives to this. I think it's fascinating. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge how much? Nothing. Until you say it right there, judge nothing. But look what he keeps saying. Judge nothing before what? Will there be, according to the Apostle Paul, a time for us to judge? Yes. So what makes the difference between now and then? 
Well, let's keep reading. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. By the way, what time is that? Until the Lord comes. So he's referring clearly to the second coming. There will be a judgment committed to us at the time of Christ's return. Speaking of Christ, the Lord, who will bring to light, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Ah, we'll have extra information at that time. Those secret things will be revealed not only to Christ, who already sees them, but also to the redeemed, who will have a chance to see them as well. Then each one's praise will come from God. In fact, he gets more explicit. Turn this page. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, that was 4 verse 5. And now we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians and just turn over to chapter 6. He comes back to this, starting with verse 1. And again, he had frustrations with the brethren in Corinth, who apparently were squabbling amongst themselves, and instead of sorting it out within the church family, they were going to ungodly men in civil legislatures and civil councils, judiciaries, to kind of sort out their problems. And Paul is aghast. He's like, this is so embarrassing. You're going to these earthly judges. Don't you know that you will be entrusted with... Well, let's just read what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Dare any of you, brethren... I'm sorry, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know? By the way, do you not know? Paul returns to this phrase several times in his writing. This is something he's like, I've already told you, you should be established in this. This should be basic for you. Do you not know that the saints will what? Judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So notice, he's not saying don't be... He's not, he, this is not a caution against using judgment. It's a caution about not being judgmental. Right? But he wants them to practice good judgment, good discernment, judicious evaluation. He's like, if something comes up in the church, hear about it amongst the brethren, pray about it, seek biblical counsel and make a wise decision. You should practice judgment now because you're going to be entrusted with judgment then. Do you not know? It's fascinating. So we come back to this question. I think that was six verses one through what, three? What? Is there left to judge? Go back to Revelation chapter 20. What is there left to judge? Because, for instance, let's do a process of elimination. Are the redeemed sorting out who will be saved and who will be lost? No. Give me some obvious reason why that's the case. Okay, well, hang on to that for just a second. But somebody tell me why it's obvious that they're not determining who's going to heaven and who's not. Because they're already there. <laughs> and the other ones already aren't, right? So the reward of, you know, heaven or not, life or death, sheep or goat, left or right, however you want to describe, that separation, that determination has already been made and the separation has already occurred. So the verdict has been rendered, and I want to be clear about this, without any of our help whatsoever. Christ determines who's saved and who's lost. Amen? Amen. 
then what are they determining? Now, I'm going to see who's going to give me the, the most, the typical Adventist answer, which will be right in part. You want to go for it? So, in essence, we're, we aren't judging people, we're judging God's judgment. All right, he gets the first bonus point. Well, we get to look and open the books and look at the book. We do. And Clearly, he's going to bring, to for, bring forth the hidden things, right? But why? He's going to let us know why our loved ones are not there. All right. All right. To give us more information so we understand why. Why they're there or they're not. We can see the justice of God in rendering that verdict. It's true. It's also for other worlds to see the whole process. Remember, thousands times ten thousands are there. I'm good with that. Somebody's going to hit on it at some point. Eliminate all doubts. Good, good, good. It's just in what he did. <laughs> Woo! Oh, I'm going to let you come back to that. I want to see if one more guest gets it. Yes? Woo! Tied right into that. What was your say? Sentence? I mean, sentencing. There's two phases to judgment. There's the verdict rendering phase, right? Where the investigation, all the facts are put forth, and then a jury or judge determines whether they're guilty or not guilty. But in any earthly case, you see the same thing happen. The determination of guilt or innocence is established, and then they have to come back another time for what? For sentencing. Now, what am I going to get for it? Is it going to be a fine? Is it going to be jail time? Is it, heaven forbid, death? Now, I want to be clear. I have no problem at all, and I think it's absolutely true that in this process we will see why our loved ones are or aren't there. We will see all that God has done to reach out to those who have rejected his light, all that kind of stuff. We'll see the reasons why. We'll see behind it. We'll see all the hidden things. No problem. But why is it there? Let's keep going. Um, let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. I told you that's home base here. In verse 5, it says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So clearly the wicked are going to come back to life. But this experience is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. Because clearly those who have been beheaded had experienced first death, right? <laughs> but there was... Friends, the difference between first, this is very simple, the difference between first death and second death isn't the, like, the deepness of the death. They're both equally dead. The only difference is the duration of the death. Right? One has a resurrection to follow. And it's both for the righteous and for the wicked. Notice that everyone's going to get resurrected. It's just which resurrection? Did Christ speak about two resurrections? Sure. And one happens at the second coming for the righteous and at the end of the millennium for the wicked. But everyone who dies here experiences first death. That's guaranteed. Unless Jesus comes first, we're all going to experience first death. And we're all going to get resurrected at one of the two resurrections. Second death, however, the distinction between second death and first death, second death is simply the death from which there is no 
resurrection. It's not a deeper dead or a less conscious, I mean, a more conscious death, heaven forbid. It's simply a death from which there is no resurrection. It's final. Those who come up in the first resurrection have nothing to fear from that second death experience. So what are they doing during this thousand years? And how can we biblically justify this type of idea? Now I could take you straight to the writings of Ellen White, and I'm going to go there second. But I believe there's a chapter in the Bible devoted to this. It's a very short one. It's in the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm 149. Is there any inference at all that the redeemed will actually have part in the execution of the judgment of God? Psalm 149. And we're going to read the whole chapter. All nine verses. <laughs> but I want you to notice that there is a dichotomy. There is a duality to this. There is a two-sidedness of the coin in, Revel I mean, in, in Psalm 149. Notice what we see here. And notice how it's written from the perspective of one who is enjoying redemption and salvation. Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people and will beautify the humble with what? Salvation. Keeps going. It's a very high, happy psalm, this one. Verse 5. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. So at the same time, they're singing about their joy in salvation. They also have in their hand a two-edged sword. For what purpose? Verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. See if this doesn't sound like Revelation 20. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. In verse 9, to execute on them the written judgment. Please notice they're not the ones writing the judgment. But they are executing on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Is there any inference that the saints will judge the world? Yes, not even an inference. It's an explicit declaration. Revelation 20 talks about it. Paul talked about it. I believe David the psalmist talks about it. Now let's look at God's last day prophet, the great controversy, page 661. She explains, speaking of the millennium, thousand year judgment. At this time, D, uh, I'm sorry, great controversy, GC 661. At this time, the righteous reign as kings and priests unto God. John in the Revelation says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Quoting Revelation 20 verses 4 and 6. It is at this time that, as foretold by Paul, the saints shall judge the world. By the way, it's a very easy Bible study to come up with. She just puts all the text together. In, now notice this. What does she mean by all this? 
Well, what does scripture mean by all this? In union with Christ, they judge the wicked. Now, it doesn't say Christ said, here, go crazy. I'll be back in a thousand years. Is Christ still running the judgment? Yes. But for some reason, he invites the redeemed from the earth to sit with him for this particular work. In union with Christ, they judge the wicked. Comparing their acts with the statute book, the Bible, and deciding every case according to the deeds done in the body. Then the portion which the wicked must suffer is meted out according to their works and is recorded against their names in the book of death. Great Controversy 661. Now, what I'm going to share with you is my personal opinion upon reflecting on this. But let's talk about the uniqueness of this millennium, when the dead rise again, the wicked dead. Because if you go back to Revelation chapter 20, notice the very next thing that happens is the resurrection of the wicked. Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired... Satan will be released from his prison. That's another reference to the resurrection of the wicked. Now he has people to deceive again. And it says in verse 8 explicitly, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together. Now I wish it said for repentance. <laughs> but what is the purpose of their gathering together? For battle. Have their hearts changed during their thousand years of death? Of course not. There's no thinking. There's no repenting. The character they had going into the grave is exactly the one they have coming out. Perhaps some of the saddest language in Scripture is right here, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that's why I would say, now come back to that, because you're going to say, aha, there's eternal burning hell. That's why our next study is about hell. What does this mean? What possible good would it do? Well, let's just keep reading. I believe, this is my particular contention, that verses 11 and onward because what you get, if it just stopped right there, is you'd have the wicked wake up, go to battle, and Christ just kills them again. But notice what we keep, we keep reading. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged, and notice this phrase, according to what? Their works. So will I be, well, first of all, I have no intention on being lost. But if I were lost, would I be judged on your works or on my works? Will there just be a general penalty for all wicked that's exactly the same? No. It's going to be individualized. It'll be personalized. Each one according to his works. 
And you'll see that phrase a couple times here. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades uh, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A couple times here you have mentioned each one according to their or his works. Now this dovetails beautifully into the study of hell, but let's just think about it critically for a moment. One of the problems... Well, first of all, let's say this. As we'll see in our next little study, the idea of an eternal conscience torment of the wicked is simply not biblical. And I praise the Lord for that. I have heard very prominent evangelists say, friends, hell can't possibly be conscious torment forever and ever unending because that's not in harmony with the character of God. Well, it's not in harmony with the character of God but that's, why, that's not why it's not true. It's not true because it's not in the Bible. And the Bible, of course, is in harmony with the character of God. The, and you might think, well, what's the big deal there? Well, what happens when I start determining what is or is not in harmony with, with the heart of God and Scripture contradicts my, pre, my presupposition? I want to make sure that whatever it is is biblical and I trust that that's in harmony with an expression of God's love and heart, Right? But number one, it's not taught in the Bible, and I praise the Lord for that. And number two, it completely eviscerates the notion of a loving God. And we can sit here and tell the reasons why. First of all, if, if you have, I mean, 70 some odd years of life, no matter how awful it is, doesn't re- deserve 70 trillion times 70 trillion years of conscious torment. It's just, you don't even have to be like a Christian or a good guy. Even a messed up guy would like, yeah, that's pretty bad. That's not right. So there's that. So it's not biblical, and it's not in harmony with the character of God. But it's also just old-fashioned not fair because it's one size fits all, Right? Like, if there was a 28-year-old punk, disrespectful, just really an ornery kind of mischievous jerk, and he died tragically in a motorcycle accident, would he, in the judgment, would it be just for him to get the same punishment as, say, Adolf Hitler? No. Hitler deserves more. Whatever the more is, Hitler deserves more of it. Right? Now, Should we give Hitler the same thing as Satan? Now, in the previous one, Hitler was like the ultimate bad guy. In any political thing, as soon as you throw down the Hitler card, it's game over. Right? Oh, that's the worst you can get. Then you say, I'll see your Hitler and raise you a Satan. You're like, oh, Satan's the worst you can get, right? Which, of course, he's the worst. But even he has not existed from eternity. He had a beginning. He has an end. Like, It's one size fits all, and that's not fair. Now, we can give several good reasons why an unending conscious torment is not what is fact. I do have a concern, however, and that is 
we rail so much against the eternal conscious torment of the wicked that we sometimes give the implied or sometimes outright stated expression that the opposite is true, that they'll be, de they'll be de uh, uh, devoured in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Well, friends, that's also not biblical. And I would contend that's not in the, within the character of God. And it's also just not fair. Because you notice it does have one important factor in common with the other extreme. And that is that it's one size fits all. So what's the only way to not have one of those two extremes? Instantaneous or unending? you got to have some sort of some sort of categorization, some sort of differentiation. So how do you do that? Well, we specialize it, we individualize it, personalize it to each individual. Now let's go another step deeper. Let's think about something that makes the righteous, redeemed, uniquely suited for this task. Whereas, perhaps it would be a bad idea to have Gabriel doing this task. Let's think about it, friends. You can think out loud. It's okay. Okay. Stand in a little different position. What's one big, obvious, glaring difference between us and Gabriel? I mean, we're both created beings, right? Yeah, we have sinned and been redeemed. Those other sons of God who watch the conversation between Christ and Satan, they haven't sinned. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, haven't sinned. God the Son certainly never sinned, amen? Now, he felt the weight of our sin on his shoulders, but he's never personally been guilty. He's the one who's given control of it. But could the argument be made that if, let's say, Jesus Christ and Gabriel got together and meted out the discipline for each person. Couldn't an argument be made that, hey, that's not fair. What do you think Gabriel's going to say to the sinners? Probably more along the lines of throw the book at them. So why do you believe, at least this is my thinking, why would the Lord bring the redeemed into this particular deliberation? Thank you. They are the single most sympathetic audience in all the universe. Of course, I believe that God is in his heart the same way, but it will be seen as sympathetic, right? I like to put it this way. If, and this is a huge if, I have no, no intention on being, but if I am in the end lost, I only want two people determining my sentence. Jesus Christ and my mom. <laughs> right? It seems laughable because what, what do you expect your mom's going to do? She's going to go easy, right? <laughs> and some of you are like, no, 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 not my mom. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. Justice will be fully meted out and mercy will be as far as possibly could be extended. I wonder how sympathetic you'll actually feel to see 
fighting against the, the I think it's probably a good thing that we determine their sentence before they come up. So it's not done in the heat of the moment. No pun intended. But, um, but the, the millennium is unique in all moments of human history, distinct even from the second coming. Because in the millennium, every sentient creature who God ever made is alive at the same place and at the same time. It's the only time in the universe's history where every created thinking being is standing in one place at one time, face to face with God. It's the only time it ever happens and the last time it ever happens, at least including the wicked. Oh, it's going to be really hard on God. There's a reason the Bible calls this his strange work, his strange act. What did it say in 2 Peter 3? Why is the Lord slow? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. His goal isn't to destroy, his goal is to save sinners, right? But the day of the Lord will come. So there's this justice and mercy dichotomy always playing here with God. I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Now, see, you're setting up, you're like, you think this, but, so just go ahead and tell us the but. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What's your statement? By the way, is this on our topic today? Is this on our topic today? Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Like, he also gets punished for our sins. Jesus was punished for his sins and Satan Yep. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And I'll tell you why. Let's come back to that one after the break. And we'll dovetail Millennium onto, we'll just tie Millennium Hell right together. Who, there was one over here? I don't, oh, yes, sir. What you're suggesting is that the suffering for one and them no, I'm not suggesting that. I'm overtly, explicitly saying that. Yes. Isn't that like a purgatory in reverse? No. It's the destruction of the wicked in the forward. It's the destruction of the wicked going forward. It's not purgatory in reverse. Well, it's purgatory in reverse in that purgatory, as Catholics have it, you get to salvation. The other is you get to annihilation. No, this is the annihilation. You're not getting to the annihilation. This is the annihilating process that God has established. When you differentiate the punishment. Yes. Okay. Yes. The annihilation comes shorter or longer for some? Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. In other words. Yeah. Right. So in other words, in other words, when your work occurs, some suffer two seconds, some suffer two years, some suffer. Well, I don't. The only. The only. Uh, the only time delineation is from Sister White, where she says many days. I'm, I, I'm comfortable leaving it not weeks, months, or years. She keeps it to days, so I'm good with that. Yeah. One is elongated, one is... Yes. Yes. Depending upon what? That's right, according to their works. Yep. And I, the only reason I come up with that is because the Bible says so. 
And I'm not trying to be flippant, but you got to do something with each one is judged according to their works, and it's in the context of the destruction of the wicked. I don't know. Yeah. I'll give you a, a, a metaphor for this, a, uh, an illustration of her question in just a second. Yes, sir. When, when it comes on the other side, you have the parable of the, uh, of the, of the uh, vineyard owner that has people working at different times of the day, and the one that was yeah. that worked at the end of the day, now they all were rewarded the same. Right. Now, on the on the salvation side, uh-huh. but then there's also this concept that if you can be faithful over little, you'll be, you know, you'll be yeah. much and all that stuff. And I know the evangelicals have an idea that if you've been good, then you have like so many cities to rule over, and if you're oh. better, you got to... I'll be anxious to see what that really means. I don't know. But I do have a differentiation of the punishment of the wicked from a parable of Christ. Remember we talked about some will be beaten with few and others with many? So they're not having the same beating. There's a differentiation. But in the salvation, it is the same reward. Well, I don't know if I get a half of an eternity or a full eternity. Because infinite is just infinite. Infinity can't be divided or added to. It is what it is. And praise the Lord for that. The reward is the same. It's infinitely mind-blowing. But the destruction is individualized. Now, we do have many crowns, and maybe there might be some sort of responsibility differentiation. I don't know. Sister White says that those who have been the uh, hardest against Christ but been redeemed will be the closest to Christ. You know, I don't know. But I'm going to be fine with it. <laughs> as long as I'm in that crowd, he can arrange me however he wants. I'm fine. Yes, ma'am. I missed that one. Yeah, that very same day you said at the second coming, God comes with Jesus. And that very night, Stephen Bohr said, he, said when Jesus comes at the second coming, the Father stays back. Yes, we'd have to sort it out then. we got to look at some text. I wouldn't be against it. i got no problem. I mean, God's coming either way because they're both, I mean, so, and where's the Holy Spirit in that? Is he kind of halfway? Is he, there's a lot of, I, I, I certainly don't want to, I want to ring out everything the Bible says, and I don't want to speculate beyond that. Like, I want to drive to the edge of the cliff and lean over, I just don't want to fall or jump. So, if there's some nuance that we can, can sort out clearly, I'm open to that. All right, let's come back to it now. I want to give you a couple of things as we, as we close off the millennium transition into hell. <laughs> come now, let us descend. The other, we talked about the, we're going to hit two or three issues here, but we talked about the destruction of the wicked as being proportional to his works, each one according to his works, Okay. Now, I believe that's an important thing because, for many, many reasons, but notice, um, let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, and we see a promise here. We see a promise that is given that applies to that particular time. Starting verse 22, Isaiah chapter 45 Isaiah 45, starting with verse 22, and listen to the pathos in God's voice, the emotion while he is speaking here through his prophet. 
The Lord says, look to be, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall, what? Bow. And every tongue shall take an oath. Does it say every righteous knee will bow? No. It says every knee. It's a blanket statement. And notice there's both the righteous and the wicked included in this. Verse 24. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. So notice this, that all are going to come there. Every knee is going to bow and some are going to say in him I have salvation and others are going to be incensed to get him, but they're all there. You get the same notion from Philippians chapter 2, right? Where it talks about the humility of Jesus and how God raises him up. Verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him, that is Jesus Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Where did he get that phrase from? Isaiah 45, right? And every of, of those, and notice, and of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and those under the earth. It's all inclusive. Every knee shall bow, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the final analysis, even the wicked will acknowledge the justice, fairness, and mercy of God. Now, it's not out of a second repentance, it's not out of a conversion experience, but out of the sheer weight of undeniable evidence, God is right, and they were wrong. They hitched their wagon to a falling star, right? Listen to the language here as we close out this millennium part. Great Controversy, page 670, GC 670. For thousands of years, this chief of conspiracy has palmed off falsehood for truth. But the time has now come when the rebellion is to be finally defeated and the history and character of Satan disclosed. In his last great effort to dethrone Christ, destroy his people, and take possession of the city of God, the ark deceiver has been fully unmasked. Those who have united with him see the total failure of his cause. Christ's followers and the loyal angels behold the full extent of his machinations against the government of God. He is the object of universal abhorrence. Satan sees that his voluntary rebellion has unfitted him for heaven. He has trained his powers to war against God. The purity, peace, and harmony of heaven would be to him supreme torture. His accusations against the mercy and justice of God are now silenced. The reproach which he has endeavored to cast upon Jehovah rests wholly upon himself. And now Satan bows down and confesses the justice of his sentence. GC 670. So you have Satan acknowledging the justice of his what? His sentence. That even the wicked will look at the process and even their own punishment and say, yeah, that's right. Can't get around it. That You did the best possible. That's it. There's nothing more that could have been done. Which is the argument at the end. Couldn't you have done more? Couldn't you have done something different? Couldn't you? No. God has done everything possible to save the lost. 
which brings us back around to Nahum chapter 1, verse 9. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Why is it a guarantee that God can make that affliction will not rise a second time without taking away our freedom of choice? For instance, could people sin after the millennium judgment? Is disobedience a possibility? Sure. If there's any expectation of obedience, there's the risk of disobedience, but God makes the guarantee no one will ever do it. Yeah. There's a difference between knowing the future and causing the future. Christ knows that no one will ever choose again. He can make that guarantee, not because he's going to cause no one to choose again. He just knows they never will. And why? Because they have seen every step of this destruction. They've seen the entire great controversy, the entire plan of redemption played out. They've seen every decision, every choice. They've seen the secret things. They've seen the hidden things. And I love how uh, another evangelist put it, and I just stole it because it's so good. He says, God's going to take everyone to heaven, comma, who would be happy there. The purpose of this life is to determine if you even want the next life. The purpose of this life is to determine if you even want the next life. All of us get this little sample spoon for free. But Christ is asking, are you willing to buy in for the whole thing? Or do you just want to be done when this is over? What were, the, what were the wicked saying when they saw Christ coming on the clouds? They were fleeing to the rocks and the mountains to fall on us and hide us from what? From the wrath of the lamb in the face of him. Have you ever seen a, ram, a lamb be wrathful? <laughs> I mean, what would be the wrath of a lamb? Like a big angry bat. You know? Or what, what's the part about Jesus that they're so afraid of? His fist? His sword? No, what is it? His face. They don't want... By the way, do the wicked want the kingdom? Yes. What are they rising up against? What, I mean, what are they trying to... They want the city? They want, do you think that thieves want streets of gold? Sure. And giraffe neck slides and dolphin rides and whatever the things are, the, the table with food. The wicked want those things too. They want the kingdom. What's the one thing they don't want? The king. I greatly fear. Not, it's not a great fear. And I know we have to teach heaven somehow. But friends, what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. Not all the stuff. The stuff is nice. But if heaven were just like this world, but we could have Jesus, it'd be heaven to me. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, we want the king himself. We want Christ. Two things I want to add to the little study just for parenthetical. You can find this in Luke chapter 12, the faithful, the servant, and the, uh, the faithful, the parable of the faithful servant and the evil servant. And we'll start in verse 42. This is to illustrate the idea of differentiated punishments. Luke chapter 12, verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will, find, will make ruler of his household to give them their portion of food in due season? 
Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will bless, that he will make him ruler of all that he has. Verse 45. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But, verse 48, he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Now, they're both going to get a punishment, right? But is there a difference in the severity, in the duration? Yes. And what's it based on? You're accountable for what you know. If you're unfaithful in a little, well, you'll be punished for a little. If you're unfaithful in a great deal, which is what makes it so dangerous to know Bible truth. Now you're accountable for more. If you don't keep the seventh day holy, you're in bigger trouble. Now, it's still sin not to keep it, right? But you have a clearer knowledge. By the way, why is Satan's situation different from ours? His sin occurred right in the very face of Jesus, in the, in the light of the glory of God himself. There was nothing he couldn't have had access to. I mean, everything that could be known was known. And he just chose to walk away. Anyway, that's two things. Let me share with you this one illustration that I used to answer your question back there. I don't remember your name, but I'm pointing at you. Okay. Okay, Tammy? Okay. Uh, I didn't come up with this one on my own, but it's a good one, and so I use it in my evangelistic series. And it goes back to that sanctuary process, which, you know, the scapegoat and the who sins are on the scapegoat and... In the illustration, it goes like this. I'll tell it as briefly as I can. There was a young lady who went to college, and um, she hadn't done too well in high school, but she was determined to start fresh in college, and she was going to turn over a new leaf, and she decided to challenge herself and apply herself and really hit the books and make a name for herself. And Anyway, she goes to, and she signed up for some really hard classes, and one particular class, it didn't take her long at all to realize she was in over her head. Her eyes were bigger than her stomach, and she bit off more than she could chew. But she stuck with it, and she was able to passably get by with the other classes, but this one particular class was just shredding her. She was getting farther and farther behind, and all of a sudden her B dropped to a C, dropped to a D, and finally she was just flunking. But it was too late to back out. She couldn't drop the class, and she'd already paid money for it, but she could see that there was no mathematical way to get back in good grades. What is she going to do? So she goes to the instructor, the professor. And um, she explains her plight. You know, I wasn't too great in high school. I wanted to really do well here, but it's just in over my head. I'm just, I'm just completely over a barrel here. What can I possibly do? And the professor, seeing an ungodly opportunity, proposes an incredibly unethical solution. He says, I'll help you out, 
you help me out. And uh, she was kind of shuddered at the thought. But she didn't want to disappoint her parents and waste all the money, and she put all this time, and she didn't know what to do, and she felt whatever. So she did the deal. And true to his word, as the term progressed, her grade started to increase. Not obviously jumping up to an A is to get others suspicious, but you know, they had this reciprocity and her grade kept going up. She was earning it, but not, not the right way. But as her grade started to go up, her conscience started just spiraling down and she was falling apart and she realized, I can't go on like this. I would rather fail than pass this way. And she decides to confess. And she goes to the academic dean one day. I think we need to have an appointment. We need to talk. Sure, come on in. What's wrong? I have engaged in academic dishonesty. Oh, no, have you been cheating off of a quiz? Or did you steal someone else? She's like, you better sit down for this one. And she just opens up and tells the whole story. He's saying, so your entire grade is based on, she's like, yep. I just had to come clean. He says, we, we've got to have an academic council about this. We can't just pretend this didn't happen. She says, I understand. Do what you need to do. Fall on the mercy of the court. Whatever you decide, I'll go with. I just want to be done. And the council meets. And they give her a call. And they said, because you were so forthright and so sincere and your repentance and confession here. We're going to give you another chance. But know that you're on academic probation. <laughs> she said, absolutely no doubt. I won't do anything naughty. Not even a little looking on the other, uh, just this migraine, that's it. If you let me keep going, we're gonna let you. But just know we're watching. She left there feeling a mile high. And she started getting some of the worst grades in her life, and she was thrilled. <laughs> right? That A went back down to a B, went back down to a C, but it was her C, right? And it finally leveled off at a D plus, enough to pass. And she was just, she was never so proud of a D in her life. End of the semester comes along, and she gets a phone call from the office of the academic dean. We need you to come up to visit with the council. And her heart starts, boom, 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 boom. She's like, she starts reviewing everything she's ever done. I haven't been bad since. I haven't, no, 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 no. You know, she's like. And she goes up there. And when she gets into the foyer, the lobby there, she looks around and she notices she's not the only person there. There's another young lady and another young lady and another young lady. The lobby's just full of them. Why are they all there? Come on, friends. If they had taken the record of what she had done wrong and just burned it when she confessed and repented and she got probation and she got a grade, would the story be ended? What's missing in this story? Whatever happened to him? 
They keep their records on the record books, not to retry and condemn her, but as a record of wrong to condemn him. And they're going to take all of the wrong that is ever done and say, you caused this. Now, did he have sin? Yes. But did he share in that one too? Yes, he was the one who promoted. He was led. He was the tempter. He was the one who... And so, yeah, he's going to pay for what he did, but also for what he led them to do because their sin is his sin, right? So, the reason our sins are transferred when we confess and repent instead of being eliminated is because the source of the evil still has to be dealt with. you got to get rid of the naughty professor himself or the problem's never going to go away. Um, so I have no problem at all with Jesus dying for our sins and still Satan paying a penalty for what he's caused me to do. I'm totally good with it. The only difference there is, in my estimation, is that they haven't confessed. They've never said, I want this off of me. I'm standing with a professor. They're like, yep. Will he also die for their sins as well? Well, they're going to die along with him. You know what I'm saying? But she gets mercy and he doesn't. And they don't get mercy because she's the only one who came and confessed and repented and started over and walked in a newness of life, right? That's the distinction. Now, every analogy, every metaphor has its ups and downs, pauses, but when I was first told that one, I was like, that one's good. To me, that makes sense. And I hope it helps to understand why Satan gets a longer punishment because he's the root of the whole thing. He's the scapegoat in which all the sins are put back onto because he's the one who started the whole thing up. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.